What's going on, people? Welcome back to another episode of the Chatting in the City podcast, brought to you by VTrack Lab at the University of Ottawa. Um, this is the second episode, well, two episodes in, in two weeks. I'm kind of, uh, I'm proud of myself. Usually it takes a little time to get these episodes out, but uh, I'm trying to do my best to kind of, you know, keep it going, keeping them out there. And today I am here with a special, special guest um, coming to us live from Kentucky, Louisville, Kentucky. Um, he is a clinical psychologist. He is the founder and director of the Kentucky Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders, uh, Dr. Chapman. Welcome to Chatting. And it's a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate being on. Thank you for having me. No, it's my pleasure, man. Um, I was so excited when you actually agreed to come do this. <laughs> and I have so many questions, but we're going to try to take him in turn and go slowly. Um, I guess the first question is, um, what is it that you do? Yeah, it's a good question. So, I mean, like you said, I'm a clinical psychologist and uh, I specialize, right? So anxiety and related disorders is my lane, so to speak, right? So I see other things that happen from time to time, but ultimately my day-to-day -day really is helping people who struggle with anxiety and related disorders, just for example, social anxiety, panic, agoraphobia, OCD, trauma, PTSD, uh, skin picking disorders, hair pulling, like all of those are under the anxiety umbrella. So I specialize in cognitive behavioral therapy, which in many ways, of course, is the gold standard for all that. So, you know, I specialize primarily in time limited treatment where I'm helping people become their own psychologist. So it's not counseling per se, right? Like I give wise counsel to people, but it's not a cross your leg, tilt head, awkward smile. What would you like to talk about sort of vibes? It's not that it's more so like, here's the symptoms you have. So let's get it. So ultimately, that's what I do on a regular basis. Nice. And I, I um, I like that emphasis on trying to get the person to actually become their own psychologist, be able to help themselves instead of essentially coming back to you for 10 years right. on and on. Yep. I, I like that. Um, so CBT, you mentioned that briefly. Can you break uh, it down? What does that entail? Because I mean, I'm in psychology, so I kind of know what that yeah. entails. But for most people out there, they don't know what CBT is. Yeah, it's a great question, boy. So CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy. And the premise behind CBT is that your emotional experiences have three parts. You have your cognition or thoughts, what you say to yourself, your feelings, which is really physical sensations. So what I experience physiologically in my body and then my behavior or how I respond, what I do as it relates to emotional experiences. And what we find with CBT is that teaching clients the interconnection between their thoughts, physiological experiences and their behavior is the key to regulating emotions. And it doesn't really matter what the emotion is. I mean, that's the the T, right, is that it's not just anxiety. It's if I struggle with anger, disgust, sadness, you know, mm -hmm. slept on emotions, as I like to say, like things we don't typically think about. Disgust is one of those things people don't really think about, right? But that's yeah. something you see with contamination concerns, phobias and things like that, blood injection, injury phobia, stuff like that. And ultimately teaching a client that if you can regulate that, then you're able to reprogram, right, associations that you learn in your brain as you confront situations that trigger distress and then literally become your own antidepressant. So CBT like really makes you a superhero, really. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. And um, um, on your on your Twitter, there's a hashtag, hashtag, as they do, yep. hashtag CBT works. And yep. uh, um, I'm kind of curious how that came about, because obviously, like I said, I do know a little more about CBT and kind of right. why it came to about, um, you know, there was a sort of focus on medication rather than actually trying to engage a person in a cognitive behavior or something they can actually a tool they can use rather right. than medicating them so could you sort of get into how the cbt works uh, hashtag yeah. came about 
Yeah, of course. So like on Twitter, you know, one of the contingencies I have on Twitter, like a lot of people who know me personally, boy, as I say that I say facts a lot. And that's true. Like I don't cap and I also say facts quite a bit. And CBT works as facts, right? So ultimately CBT works is the hashtag we use. Why? Because it works, right? So anytime we talk about treating various syndromes and symptoms, right? We tend to shy away from labels. I do at least, but like when we're treating anxiety and related symptoms, we always talk about hashtag CBT works because it is the gold standard treatment. As you know, you know, medication typically is the first line treatment for most types of symptoms and symptomology, right? Mm. But the best available treatment for anxiety related symptoms is CBT. And it shows trial upon trial that it's more effective, right? Than other types of therapy as well as uh, medication for certain problems. So again, hashtag CBT works because it does. So we always try to put that out there to educate the public on like, hey, help's available. It's time limited and it's something that, you know, it's something that you can easily understand if you apply it and you're motivated to do it. So. All facts, all facts, facts. no cap. No cap. All right, so if somebody somebody comes to you with, um, somebody's been struggling with generalized anxiety disorder, um, how would you use CBT to help them? Yeah, it's a great, that's a great question. And I think that when we think about, say, GAD or generalized anxiety, it's funny because, like, if I, you know, take that and then add some things to it, like social anxiety disorder or mm. panic disorder or agoraphobia, the way we see things, Boaz, is interesting because as a researcher, too, we find that all those disorders that you and I are talking about, they all come from the same place, right? Our learning histories dictate what our focus of anxiety is on, right? And people are predisposed to have big feelings as we like to say, right? If I get salty, I'm big salty. If I'm high in neuroticism, right? Neuroticism is the problem that many people who struggle with anxiety have at a temperament level and that interacts with what they learn. So in the case of GAD, it's this idea that my thoughts in and of themselves, right? Will lead to catastrophe. So with GAD, it's, I have this strong arousal in my body associated with negative outcomes, right? So ultimately, Mm -hmm exposure is a super potent ingredient of CBT, part of the B part, and confronting situations where I have learned these associations in my brain and learning how to regulate my emotions in that context is the key to changing chronic worry. So in the case of worry and GAD, it's me doing things like imaginal exposure, where I'm actually high key confronting the thing I'm concerned about until my brain essentially says, yeah, shrug emoji, right? It's not as big deal as I thought, but it's not pushing it away or suppressing it. Like think happy thoughts, right? That doesn't work. It's more so saying, no, I need you to not only think about the worst case scenario, but I also need you to say out loud how you feel about the worst case scenario. Cause worry is a form of avoidance. Mm. So if I confront worry, then it loses its sting. Right. So that's kind of how CBT would work with, uh, with GAD and worry. And at the same time, your thoughts change by virtue of the catastrophic outcome not happening. So you have to think differently as a result. Yeah, exactly. It's a uh, it's a sort of conditioning. You expose yourself to the thing. Yep. The worst case scenario doesn't happen. You're like, well, I guess that was you know sort of some sort of illusion that I had in my mind or something like that. And exposure is interesting. It's very counterintuitive because for most mm-hmm. people, you'd think if that thing terrifies me, I don't want to be anywhere near it. Right. Facts. But then research shows that actually, if you try to slowly expose mm-hmm. yourself to it, like you said, starting with just thinking about it you know, exposing yourself to it, just imagining being in the situation and then moving towards maybe getting, if you're scared of uh, elevators, maybe looking at the elevator first, mm-hmm. maybe moving towards the two steps, maybe even entering in one, right? So this is all gradual exposure. 
you, you know, you think it's probably the worst thing you can do, but it actually helps. Like you said, it's the opposite of avoidance. It helps you. It is. That's right. Yeah, because avoidance maintains that fear long term. And that's the irony is that it's a paradox. Well, it's a paradox, really. It's like when I avoid, I do get relief. But that relief is always temporary because it backfires mm-hmm. and perpetuates my anxiety about that situation. So my brain associates avoidance with that arousal. Right. So the next time I feel that way, it's like, oh, I got to avoid it to get that same relief. So it's a vicious cycle. But in reality, when I confront it, emotions ebb and flow. And they naturally come down if I allow it to. But most people who are anxious don't see that happen. So, okay. um, I want to get into something slightly. Well, I guess it is a continuation of the question. Um, it's about culture and mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, yesterday, I was reading a chapter you wrote in adult psychopathology yeah. uh, about sort of the um, how essentially culture affects the presentation of psychopathologies. Mm-hmm. Um, could you explain? Because I mean within clinical psychology, within psychiatry as well. The DSM has, you know, these categories for symptoms you should be looking for, maybe some cardinal symptoms you should look for for certain disorders. And if the person meets them, then you can kind of, right, you know, diagnose them with the disorder. Right. But something that's fascinating is that those symptoms don't necessarily carry over across cultures. Yep. Right. So in the sense, like the phenomenology across cultures look, looks different for people who might have, say, depression. Over yep. here in the West, whatever, Canada, all, all the states, depression might have certain symptoms that seem to be more sort of uh, that are more psychological distress. So within the mind, let's say, whereas if you go across cultures, you have people who are, they exhibit more somatic symptoms, like let's say in China or maybe in Africa and stuff like that. Um, Why does that happen? Yeah, it's a great question because I think that we have to, again, like you mentioned the DSM, I mean, historically it has a very Eurocentric vibe to it. So ultimately, when you look at research trials and studies, you find that the majority of those, right, historically have been with non-Hispanic whites. So when you look at research studies that only examine syndromes and non-Hispanic whites, you tend to base it upon, you know, categories associated with what you typically see. So with that being said, we know that there's cultural variation with the phenomenology of these symptoms because your culture of origin significantly influences your worldview and how you perceive the symptoms that you have to begin with. I mean, even like the causes and etiology, right? It's like, is it delusional to say that the devil's attacking me? Not necessarily, right? Is it delusional to say that, well, God told me that? Not necessarily. Like these are all part parts of worldviews that we have from a cultural perspective that are absolutely sanctioned. But ultimately, if you're saying that in a context in a larger culture that doesn't understand that manifestation, then you tend to explain things away like, oh, that's weird, that's aberrant, that's abnormal. And that's a, that's obviously misleading because that's not the case. I have too many examples for you. We can do that on another podcast. But I have too many examples for you about how that's happened in clinical practice. And, you know, we can talk about that another time. But, the, but, but to your point, though, you know, there's also a stigma associated historically with people of color with mental health, right? So ultimately, it's a lot easier and much more accepted to explain my mental status by saying somatic symptoms or physical symptoms, right? So if I were to say that my nerves are bad, for for example, which is like some cultural nomenclature that that many black folks in the US would say, it's like my nerves are bad. Well, that implies that there's a physical problem. That's less stigmatizing than saying, yo, I'm anxious and I'm about to flip out and pop off, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Because ultimately that could get you in trouble. And people would be like, oh, you know, cousin Mike, he's crazy. Yeah, yeah. There's a stigma associated with accepting mental symptoms or cognitive symptoms 
as the case. So saying that I have physical complaints and somatic and bodily complaints tends to be more socially sanctioned and culturally sanctioned in many cases across the world. So. Right. Right. And that, that's exactly what you wrote in, in the book. And that's what came up. That's the good. distinction between, uh, <laughs> between uh, basically the two points being stigma and also how people across the world sort of uh, think about essentially their well-being, how they appraise what's happening to them. Um, right. And the part about stigma is interesting to me because, um, yes, physical symptoms would be more accept widely accepted, especially in the Black community, because there is some about mental health. Right. If you say you're being anxious, people assume you're just right out of your mind they kind of yep. take anxiety to be the most extreme thing that you can have mm -hmm. right which is obviously it's not helpful because a lot of people are, are anxious um and so with that they can't really express it because they're like i don't want to be that person like you said i don't want to be cousin mikey i don't want to be the right. guy who's losing his mind so i'm gonna just say hey you know you know my nerves are doing whatever and i'm asking this question because um i was born in africa and my family moved over here 2008 i think and um so i was actually I guess realizing some of this stuff in myself, um, like the last two weeks of April, I just finished exams and, uh, you know, exams are stressful and all that. And right. I was feeling a little low and I was kind of, I wasn't, I was feeling a little depressed, but it wasn't in the sense that it's all in my mind. Mm -hmm. I was feeling a lot of bodily fatigue, just a lot of pain in a way. And I just spent most of my time in bed because I was just exhausted, right? Mm -hmm. Usually I like to be a guy who's out there being active, doing this, doing right. that. But it was more so that, the symptoms present themselves within my body, right? Rather than sort of having the whole thing. Even with that, there was still some aspects of uh, sort of like, um, uh, I guess like a rumination, just thinking about certain things being futile, this or that, whatever. But it wasn't, to me, it was more so within the body rather than up here. So yeah. that was interesting. That is interesting. And I would add though, as to, to your question, another thing that, I would, that I've written about and talked about in the past is this idea that across BIPOC, right? Mm. Black indigenous people of color, we also find that what we deem as a false alarm in the disorder sense, right? Like somebody having a panic attack in a crowded place or someone having a traumatic experience actually, right? Like being assaulted or something like that. We talk about these ideas of true alarms and false alarms and how those learned associations are powerful for your hippocampus, the memory center, which mm. creates a lot of the memory associations that we have with like phobias and things like that. And what I also argue is that for people of color, we have true alarms all the time that are not accounted for by that diagnostic criteria. Right. You know, for instance, I live in, you know, Indiana, though my, my center is in Louisville, Kentucky, which is where I was born and raised. And like people like look at me funny and think, wow, Dr. Chapman, you like you actually have heart palpitations when you cross the bridge and there's a cop waiting on the side of the road with a radar gun. Yeah, I do. Cause I don't see, I don't have PhD on my forehead. You know what I'm saying? Like people don't know that I'm a psychologist unless they look me up and then they like apologize. Right. right? right. So at the end of the day, you know, we have these true alarms being followed in a store, right? Driving mm -hmm. while black, like all these examples that are absolutely traumatizing to black folks that are not accounted for by diagnostic criteria. So that's the reality that we live in too. So that's the other thing I'd add because that's part of our shared experience culturally too, that is not pathological, right? How I respond to that and having like heart palpitations and shortness of breath isn't at all pathological. Right. And what do you think about the move to, uh, I guess, move away from a categorical sort of diagnostic thing to more of a dimensional thing? I'm a huge proponent of that. Uh, okay. Not only from a cultural standpoint, 
but from an empirical one. Like all of our research data supports that. And it's like I said earlier, when we think about the temperament factor that is at the heart and soul of all things emotional disorders, which is what we call neuroticism, that basically just means I have big feelings, right? I just mm. am genetically predisposed to experience emotions intensely. Literally that coupled with my learning history is what triggers these manifestations. And here's a nice quote that I like to use, Boaz. I basically tell my clients when I work with them, like, look, I'm not big on labels for a lot of reasons, but one I'll tell you is this. Disorders are just trivial manifestations of one problem. And that is a difficult time regulating core emotional experiences. So if I can help somebody regulate those core emotional experiences, then those manifestations dissipate. You know what I'm saying? So we eliminate avoidance and worry and, and panic, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of things people struggle with. We get rid of those based upon our ability to regulate the core emotions. Wow. That's fact. Another question, I guess, kind of applied to myself as well. I'm curious um, so about neuroticism specifically. Mm -hmm. So people who have big feelings, because I think myself, I don't necessarily have big feelings. I've noticed that when I'm happy, I'm not overjoyed. I'm not over the moon. And so when I'm sad, I'm not, you know, in the dumps. Right. Does that kind of make sense in the sense that I don't want to say it's like a limited range, but it's not as it's not as broad, let's say. Indeed, you're absolutely right. So you don't have to necessarily because that's really a risk factor more than anything. Right. Like there's okay. people who are high neuroticism who never develop anything. Because right. it's a double-edged sword, right? If you hide neuroticism, you're probably going to study hard, too. So, yeah, like you said, for many of us, we don't have to necessarily be high neuroticism just because of the way the different pathways that things develop, right? We talk about direct traumatic experiences, right? That's one pathway which we could start manifesting these negative symptoms. Another one is observational learning, right? Having your parent, like my mama used to always say stuff to me like, boy, you better put a coat on or you're going to get pneumonia. And I'm like, as an adult, yo, that's not how you get pneumonia. But as a child, I'm hearing her model anxiety for me, right? It's like, yeah, oh, if I yeah. wear a coat then, and I'm not high neuroticism either, but I thought about that and it gave me a pause, you know what I'm saying, to put a coat mm -hmm. on when I walked out the door. And then there's informational transmission, right? It's like just hearing about repeatedly. And that's the experience of BIPOC, right? Is that if we hear enough over and over and over and over and over over time, that begins to affect you and traumatize us in ways that are not accounted for. So yeah, you're absolutely right. There is a range for that with neuroticism. If if disorders do sort of present themselves across cultures and across different people of ethnic backgrounds, um, do you have a different approach for helping people, let's say Black people who have anxiety? Um, earlier, earlier you mentioned you know CBT and exposure therapy, but it's like, is there something more specific that you do to sort of account for all these other you know stressors, like you said? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, you know, there's a concept, boys, that I use. It's called fidelity with flexibility. And I think that that's a powerful term because <clears throat> I stay true to what works because CBT does work and that is true across cultures. So mm. my foundation is that CBT is effective for people of color. With that being said, you have to be flexible in your application of that though. So for example, here's a good example. We talk a lot about cognitive restructuring, right? Mm. I don't use that term, particularly with people of color and many of my clients who are even non-Hispanic white, because it implies that the way I think about a situation is wrong, right? Cognitive flexibility, on the other hand, implies that, yo, this could pop off, <laughs> but it, there's also other ways to look at the situation. The ones I choose can help me regulate my emotional experiences. So I think that's a good example because ultimately, 
though I apply, right, the fidelity of CBT and the structure of CBT, like my application of terms and concepts is different. I think my level of hands-on is different. Like I'm more apt to do more in-person exposures with my clients of color and stuff like that. I mean, you got to think like, for instance, I have a gentleman, you know, he's like grandpa type. You know I'm saying we're cool. We're family. And he comes in for treatment and he's not going to trust anybody else to get in his car and drive over an overpass that he's avoided for 30 years, but he'll trust me. Right. So what do you think I'm going to do? I'm going to get in the car with him. I'm going to get in the car with him and coach him up, which is part of exposure, but I would absolutely do more in that regard to build my rapport because trust is a big issue because we've been stigmatized and mistreated for years by the medical profession. So it's really important for me to also make sure that I'm trustworthy. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. Yeah. I mean, if I came to see you and I didn't trust you, I'm not going to let you, I should get in my car. I'm not going to let you tell me what to do. Talking about cognitive restructuring. I'll start giving you a talking to like, what are you talking about, man? Like, yep. Uh, a big thing is most people don't have access to therapists and clinical psychologists. So yep. um, do you have any tools for people who have anxiety, but their anxiety might not be at clinical levels, but they still want to want something to you know help them deal with it? Yeah. So I think in terms of like access, one of the good things that the pandemic has forced our hand on is to make telehealth an option. So mm -hmm. we've been much more relaxed across state lines to be able to provide more services. And I think that with that being said, the boundaries and restrictions that we had prior to COVID, one of the good things I guess with COVID is that to allow us to be more flexible to help more people. So ultimately if somebody is say like in Toronto or somebody's in New York City or something like that, they're not necessarily restricted to just psychologists and mental health professionals in that area. Mm. They actually can jump online and see who's available with telehealth and you know, most states and the regulations are okay with that. You're able right now to access mental health providers in other areas via telehealth, which is just as effective depending on the treatment approach. So that's great news. I guess we can get into some of the more fun stuff. I don't wanna keep you for too long. I know you, you, you got patients, you got people to expose, you got people to, <laughs> you know, you got stuff to do. Um, so one of the things I wanted to ask you is about the MCU, right? Oh, when man. I when I was looking at your Twitter, I saw that you're a big fan. You know, you're posting about there's some Doctor Strange stuff, some WandaVision, oh, some Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Um, and so I wanted to sort of get your views on the top five MCU films for you. Oh. And I want you to tell me why. Oh. Top five? Oh, <laughs> man. Dang, Boaz. That's tough right there. Um, so can I give you a top five with no particular order? Yeah, that's fine. All right, cool. All right. So I will say Endgame definitely is top five, right? So Endgame is top five. And I guess the, the why behind that is that being an MCU self-proclaimed MCU stand, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? Like Endgame culminated the first like two decades basically of Marvel, right? So yeah. it's like, if you followed all the, the chrono chronology of Marvel, Endgame really summarized that very well and opened the door to phase four, which I'm hype about another podcast, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Which with that said, you also have to put Infinity War in the top five. Many people that I personally know who are Marvel stands like myself would argue Infinity War was better than Endgame. And I think in many ways there was, believe it or not, I think that there's a lot of reason that you could argue that. I think the fight scenes in, in, in Infinity War were on point. I think mm -hmm. Thanos pretty much like 
I mean, think about this, boy. You're going to laugh when I say this, but it's real talk as you get to know me. Check this out. Think about the kind of beating you got to take to beat the anger out of somebody. Like Thanos, like, beat the anger out of <laughs> I want you to process that for a minute. He beat the anger out of him. So, like, yeah. the way think, like, right, right, didn't he? So, like, just thinking about Infinity War and the buildup with that, and again, how that, like, opened the door for Endgame, I think that that's a top five. Um, I think Thor Ragnarok was a top okay. five. Okay, yeah, yeah. Thor Ragnarok was slept on. That's one of the best MC movies, arguably the best, honestly, just because the evolution of Thor and his character, I think, and his story arc was, was kind of culminating in Ragnarok. So I think that you could argue most certainly, easily, the Ragnarok's top five. Uh, certainly Black Panther would be top five for me. Uh, for for a whole lot of sociocultural reasons, a whole also, lot of reasons, you yeah. already know. So I think the Black Panther definitely would be one, and like it really put Black America in the forefront. We came out in droves to see that, mm -hmm. so definitely that. And then like those are some toss ups for top. You said top five. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I go some honorable mentions with that, but unpopular opinion, Doctor Strange to me is a top five movie. I would say Winter Soldier is also possibly top five. Yes, <laughs> yes. Winter Soldier slaps. Right. And then the other movies are terrific. Don't get me wrong. But I'd mm. say that if you force my hand, those are the ones that I would rotate. That was interesting because, I mean, I was actually thinking about the question the other day. I was like, huh, most people would, would go with Endgame and Infinity War. Yep. But I kind of thought if you choose Endgame, it's kind of cheating because it's like everything has led up to this moment. Right. This is the climax in a way. So this has to be amazing. Right. But all that said, it's a great movie, whatever two hours and whatever third events or whatever it was, is a great movie. And like you said, Infinity War with Thanos beating the anger out of Hulk, that is scary. Especially the scene where, um, um, what's his name? Ebony Mo was like, let him have his fun. Right, that, that right there. <laughs> okay, all right. I mean, we were family before the call, but that <laughs> comment right there tells me where you really are though, because that's oh, literally what I was about to say is let him have his, with the hands, let him have his fun. It was just, oh my God. Like, <laughs> scary, scary. And then Ragnarok, that yeah. was, um, I was like, Thor as a character, I guess like the whole MCU arc up to Endgame, he has one of the most tragic stories I've ever totally seen. Totally agree, totally agree. Um, and the scene, I think it was in Endgame when um, Rocket is talking to him and he was like, he's like, so what more do you have to lose? Like just, Oh, I my heart broke. I agree with that. You know what's ironic about that, Boaz? And this is another conversation, but one of the only other characters I can think of deep in the MCU that people haven't been introduced to yet in the comics that ironically is supposedly going to be the villain in the fourth Thor movie mm -hmm. is Thor the God Butcher. Like that dude's character arc, I'm going to need you to look that up and then you can like oh, wow. hit me up text me or email me or whatever and tell me what you think about his character arc because he has a tragic 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 character arc that made him who he is <laughs> yeah because i mean thor is just broken and i think what he sells to rocket is i just have to kill thanos i just I, that's that's all i got i just have to kill him <laughs> yep which is why he could rock with Captain Marvel because she had the same attitude. Oh and that's God. why, you know, in Endgame, he's like, oh, I like her because all she's about was, are, are these hands and this action. So let's just go kill him. Like, there's no other solution. Exactly. We just don't <laughs> get it. And then the other one, Winter Soldier, that's also a movie that's just massively underrated. Totally. Um, that movie is, first of all, the choreography, just the fight scenes is amazing. Oh, yeah. 
and then you have Sebastian Stan and the 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 Soviet arm. Oh. I do not understand. Like how? So, um, um, Winter Soldier in that movie. Yes. And then Sebastian Stan and uh, and uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier. Facts. I don't understand. Like, there's just he seems so much weaker in Falcon and Winter Soldier when nobody could deal with him in Winter in uh, Captain America Winter Soldier. It's just I, I don't know. It doesn't right, make I sense agree. to me. I do agree with that 100%. I still don't understand that. I still don't understand that. Uh, I will say my man Zemo, though, has swag <laughs> in Falcon and Winter Soldier, just to point that out. And he's over offering these kids Turkish delights, though, for some information. That's all I'm saying. Turkish That's delights in the, in, the, in the fur coat. This guy. Right. I want that coat with the, with the Sherpa Zemo. on the hood. Come on, man. <laughs> Zemo. Oh, the cars he's got and everything. Oh my God. It's just, it doesn't make any sense. Zemo, Zemo looks like he's in a little baby video. Like he's got five cars, Lambo trucks. All right. All right, Boaz. Let me, let me bring it back. (laughs) That's hilarious. That's hilarious. Um, Before I let you go, I want to ask you two, uh, two more questions. Um, What's the most positive thing that's happened to you this year? I've been asking the guests um, sort of, like we said, it's a pandemic, terrible things are happening, but um, what are some of more positive things that have happened to you? Oh man, well, I'd say that um, we've had a lot more people to help. I think mm-hmm. that our center has been contacted quite a bit by media recently. Um, and the, the good thing about that is that access to care has improved substantially, right? So people, we can help more people that don't live here, right? Um, we can train more people to go out and be their own psychologists. And I think that what the pandemic has, has done for us as an anxiety center is that it's given us more opportunity to pop our knuckles and roll up our sleeves and get more people help. And that can be across state lines or it can be face to face. So I'd say that that's very positive because it allows us to do what we do. That's a wonderful thing. And uh, how can people get in touch with you if they wanna, like you said, if they wanna get trained to be their own psychologist yeah, or if they need help generally? Yeah, so a couple ways. So they can go to my, my personal website is drkevinchapman.com. They want to check out our center website. They can go to kycards.com. Um, as you know, I'm on social media popping off about matcha or the MCU or psychology. So they can find me. My Twitter handle is drkchap, drkchap, which is my nickname, kchap. And then you can find me on Instagram, drkevinchapman. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. I'm on pretty much all the social media platforms. So if you really want to know what's happening in my life, I go to social media. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's fact. All right, guys, you heard it. Check them out. KY Cards, Instagram, the Twitters. I'll have it all linked here. Um, probably do some screen recording, screen sharing here as well to show the people the websites. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. I don't want to keep you too long. I know you got work to do. Um, I appreciate this conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah, anytime. All right, guys. We'll see you next week. Peace.